Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This weekend in London, it's the return of the legendary New Scientist live show. And if you go and sign up for a subscription to New Scientist at our shop, you can get free gifts. They include the New Scientist tote bag, uh, which I have to say is the envy of my high street, and uh, three different copies of the New Scientist collection. That's basically our New Scientist greatest hits collection. Go to newscientist.com live to find out all about the show. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. Our aim here is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by New Scientist journalists Alexandra Thompson, Carissa Wong and Matt Sparks. Welcome back, everybody. Hi. Hello. Hey, On the show this week, we've got a fascinating story on how our ancestors evolved after we split from chimps, uh, which is quite relevant this week as a Nobel Prize was given to Svante Parbo. He pioneered DNA sequencing of, of ancient humans like Neanderthals and Denisovans. We've also got a story on why itching is contagious, or perhaps that should be scratching, mm-hmm. and a study showing how the pandemic briefly altered the sex ratio of males to females born in England and Wales. And I've been speaking with evolutionary biochemist Nick Lane, who, speaking of Nobel Prizes, he's been tipped for one in the future, and he's going to be at New Scientist Live this weekend. So do go along and see him. Uh, and I was talking with him about life, which it sounds like he's my dad, but, uh, you know, he's, that's what he works on. The origins of, rather. Than... That's right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, but we're going to start with, uh, well, what we can describe as the latest environmental disaster. This is the Nord Stream gas leak. And Matt, you've been reporting on this. Can you remind us first off where these pipelines are and what exactly has happened? Yeah, so the the pipelines are the, the two main pipelines that run under the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2. Each of those are actually two pipelines each. So there's four pipelines, and three of those have uh, sprung a leak, basically. The two pipes that make up Nord Stream 1 have both ruptured, and one of the uh, pipes that makes up Nord Stream 2 is ruptured as well. Now, uh, seismographs nearby, you know, they saw some explosions at the time that leaks were detected, and Air Force planes flying over the site afterwards saw an area of bubbling that was a kilometre across, so they they seemed like fairly, fairly major leaks. 
Mm. And when you say they sprang a leak and you saw, they saw explosions, you know, what do we know about the cause of them? Well, most European leaders were, were quick to label it sabotage because, um, quite frankly, the chances of three out of four pipelines all springing a leak yeah. all at slightly different locations right. all at the same time is pretty slim. So they were all sort of pinning it on sabotage, but they didn't point any fingers. Russia did point fingers. So they, they, they pointed squarely at the US and its allies and said that they'd uh, deliberately sabotaged these pipelines. Do we know how much gas has been lost? It's, uh, it's tricky to say at the moment. At least one of them was, was full of gas. They, neither of them were, were pumping at the time, but it, it was full, sat there static. There's estimates that suggest that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline leak, just that one of the three, released 177 million cubic metres of natural gas, which is a pretty hard amount to, to visualise, I think. Can I just sort of, I've got a little bugbear here, because the industry calls it natural gas, but you know, let's call it what it is, which is methane, because we don't call coal natural fuel rocks, or, you know, natural fuel stones or something, do we? You know, it's methane. We know that's going to have a big effect on climate change, right? Or what, what effect do we do we know about it? Yeah, you, you're right. It's, it's almost entirely methane. And uh, we know that methane is 25 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. So it's uh, certainly not good news. Mm. In fact, there was, there was some calls for the leak to actually be set on fire because it, would, uh, you know, it wouldn't reduce the overall emissions. You'd still be putting out CO2 rather than methane, but it would reduce the potency of those emissions by that 25 times. I spoke to Grant Allen at the University of Manchester just after it happened and he was sort of doing sums on the back of an envelope as I was talking to him and he said that if that leak did actually put out 177 million million cubic metres then the equivalent emissions what we'd be looking at is is the annual methane emissions of 124,000 average UK homes. Are the pipelines going to be fixed? Will they be operational again? I'm told they can be fixed. I spoke to someone at the independent watchdog in the US called the Pipeline Safety Trust, and he tells me that pipes have been damaged before. He's heard of them being sabotaged by protesters and being hit by stray bullets, that sort of thing. But there's never been a leak this bad. What can be done is they can pump the seawater out and repair sections. He told me there might be problems with rust on the inside. So it's it's a big engineering task. Gazprom, who own the pipeline, they've said it can be restored as well. But it's just really a question of whether there's the political will to do that, because this is a pipeline selling essentially Russian gas into into Europe. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably not a popular source of energy right now. (laughs) And also, um, just to put this into context, the normal, just in normal production of oil and gas, you get leakage all the time. And that leakage amounts to 80 million tonnes a year. So that's the amount I saw it from one source. That's the amount leaked from Nord Stream every one and a half days. So, you know, escaped methane is is a massive, massive problem. It almost put aside this leak. Yeah, it's a huge issue. It's kind of strange to be talking about the release of hundreds of millions of cubic metres of gas as a, as a small part of the problem. But yeah, sadly, that's true. Now we're heading into a fourth wave of COVID over here in the UK and in Australia they're just coming out of their winter wave. Rowan spoke with our Australia correspondent Alice Klein not about the latest wave so much as another unexpected outcome of the pandemic and lockdowns. Alice we've already heard about how the pandemic has had 
some funny effects on pregnancies and birth. And like, you know, there's a significant reduction in preterm births during lockdowns in lots of countries. And we can't explain that. And now it appears to have altered the gender split of babies too. So what's going on? Yeah, so normally more male babies are born than females. This is just something I've learned recently. So in England and Wales, for example, for every thousand girls who are born, there are typically about 1,054 boys born. But a new study has discovered that in June 2020, there was this sudden dip so that only 1,040 boys were born for every thousand girls in England and Wales. And I guess that doesn't sound like much, but it, you know, it's, an, it's a significant drop, is it? Yeah. So, you know, 1,054 down to 1,040 male babies for every 1,000 females, you know, doesn't sound like much. But actually, this ratio is normally pretty steady. And this was the lowest proportion of male babies to be born in a month of June across the nine years of birth records that the researchers looked at. They did a statistical analysis, which showed that it was unlikely to be due to chance. And is it because of the the shock of the pandemic? Yeah, they think that it is related to that initial shock um, when the pandemic arrived. The reason they think that is because there's already been um, quite a lot of studies in the past showing that fewer male babies tend to be born after these big stressful events that impact a whole population. For example, um, fewer boys were born in New York City after the September 11 attacks and in Norway after the Breivik shooting and in the UK after Lady Diana died. Which is interesting. Um, yeah. But specifically, these reductions in male births tend to happen at this in this time window about three to five months after the stressful event. And mm. that fits here because fewer males were born in England and Wales in June 2020, which if you think about it was about three months after one of the most acutely stressful periods of the pandemic when people in the UK started dying of COVID-19 and lockdown restrictions were introduced and the yeah. World Health Organization, you know, formally characterized it as a pandemic. Okay. So we've seen this in other animals. We see it in birds as well. Like when there's a, a very stressful event, the sex ratio changes. Is it some sort of evolved mechanism then? Yeah. I mean, no one knows for sure. But the reason why fewer males um, are thought to be born after these stressful events is potentially because the stress activates some non-conscious evolved mechanism in pregnant women that leads them to spontaneously abort fetuses that are unlikely to thrive in tough environments. Because for unknown reasons, male fetuses are more likely to be frail than female ones. So mothers of male fetuses that are frail may be unconsciously gauging that it's not the best environment to bring them into. And these pregnancy losses seem to occur in the second trimester, which may be the point at which the mother is able to unconsciously detect the health of her fetus. Wow. And is this still happening? Do we know? Are we still seeing fewer boys being born in England and Wales? No. So the ratio of male to female babies actually went back to normal by August 2020. So it's just this short-lived phenomenon um, that won't have any significant impact on the future demographics of the UK. It's not like there's going to be a shortage of men down the line or anything. (laughs) And, you know, it may be the case that as we started to get used to the pandemic, as dreadful as, as it has been for many people, there's been less of that big shock factor that initially impacted the sex ratio of birth. Um, so yeah. now it's gone back to normal. Did we see it anywhere else, any other countries, this, this shock of the pandemic leading to the, the dip in the proportion of male births? Yeah, so interestingly, the same thing has recently been reported in South Africa. 
And I spoke to Ralph Catalano at Berkeley, who's done a lot of research on this sex ratios at birth. And he told me he's currently reviewing two papers that have been submitted to academic journals showing the same phenomenon into other locations, but he couldn't reveal where. Okay, so just to go back to the beginning, though, um, when we said we've got, what, 1,054 males, babies born for every 1,000 females in England and Wales. Like, do we know why that is? Again, can you go into that a bit more? Yeah, so it seems all over the world, um, normally more male babies are born than females. And this is also a mystery, but some experts say that it might be because males are slightly more likely to die in infancy. So there may be some kind of evolutionary mechanism to produce slightly more males at the outset. So then by the time we get to reproductive age, there's an even split between males and females. Okay, let's take a break. We're recording this just ahead of our massive live event in London, New Scientist Live. It's October 7th, 8th and 9th. Do come along, meet us uh, and dozens of scientists and authors talking about all sorts of subjects. And yes, it is the world's greatest festival of science and technology. And if you can't make it to London, you can attend virtually. You can watch all the talks online. We'll put a link to that in our show notes and you can go to newscientist.com live to find out more and book your tickets to this completely unmissable event. And we have a teaser interview with one of the speakers coming up later in the show. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, last week we talked about how laughter can be contagious. And this week, Alex, you've got a story on how itching can be contagious. Is that like yawning and just talking about it is going to make me itch as we're doing this? Yeah, almost definitely. This might be slightly tortuous for you to listen to. Researchers at Washington University in Missouri have identified a pathway in the brains of mice that is activated when they see other rodents scratching themselves. The experiment itself was extremely complex. So in very simple terms, the researchers disabled the visual cortex in a group of mice, the visual cortex being the area of the brain that processes visual information. Okay, so it means that there are images in the brain, but they're not processed or interpreted at all. In mice, it's not processed in the visual cortex, correct. In the next stage of the experiment, the researchers exposed the mice to half an hour footage of other mice furiously scratching themselves. (laughs) (laughs) And even without a functioning visual cortex, the mice still scratched themselves when they saw others doing the same. 
Again, a set of pretty complex experiments, the researchers found that specialised cells in the retina of the mice's eyes connect to a tiny region of the brain that also controls their body clock, and this triggers itching. But if you delete a specific neuropeptide that carries signals from these retina cells to the tiny region of the brain, the mice don't scratch themselves when they see others scratching, regardless of whether their visual cortex is intact. So long story short, this so-called contagious itching is thought to be controlled through a visual pathway that operates independently of the visual cortex. Wow, they, these researchers are dedicated to find out the, the reason for contagious itching, aren't they? I mean, wow. Do they know why it, it, there is this effect? Contagious itching may have evolved as a survival mechanism. If you saw another animal in the group scratching, that could suggest there's a parasite or a mosquito in the midst, so you better start scratching to swat it away. As long as you see them doing it for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. God, feeling itchy already. I can't imagine what you feel like after half an hour. I know. I, I guess um, the fact that it doesn't require sort of processing in, in the visual cortex, it sort of implies it's this sort of deeply ingrained, sort of primitive, almost reflex pathway. Do we know that if there's a similar one in humans? Well, we probably all feel quite itchy right now. So <laughs> something's going on. Um, but comes as no surprise that a human's brain is considerably more complex than that of a mouse and contagious itching in us is thought to involve the visual cortex, although I'm not sure how much further our understanding goes. I mean, mice are nocturnal with poor vision. They tend to be in dark, confined spaces, so it may be more of an evolutionary strategy for them. A mouse wants to know if it's moving around in a confined space full of insects and it's easier for them to pick up on other mice scratching themselves than to spot a tiny little bug. But going back to humans, I mean, contagious behaviour in general is fascinating. Like we've talked about yawning. I mean, why do we yawn? Why is it contagious? They're topics for another day, probably. But why do we well up when we see someone else crying? Emotions can be contagious. These are missing pieces of the science puzzle. Okay, as we mentioned earlier in the show, the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine was awarded this week to Svante Pabo for his use of ancient DNA to uncover details of human evolution. So uh, we're very on trend with this next story, Carissa. It doesn't use ancient DNA, but it is looking at human evolution. Can you tell us what it's about? Yeah, so this is about what happened in terms of the evolution of fetal growth after we split from the ancestors of chimps about five million years ago. And previously, researchers studying the evolution of human pregnancy have relied on fossilised pelvises and the remains of infants, which are really rare. So now a group of researchers have developed a mathematical model, which allows you to estimate the prenatal growth rate of primates, including humans, which is how fast the fetus grows. And they do that by using the ratio of the size of two kinds of molar teeth. Since teeth are really common, um, commonly fossilised, this is a much more useful method to study the evolution of gestation. It's so clever, isn't it? Because like you say, teeth are very commonly fossilised. You wonder how many more things we can manage to glean about our history just from teeth. So what did they find? Yeah, so they built the model using molar measurements and the known prenatal growth rates of 608 primates, including those of apes. African and Asian monkeys, then they applied this model to predict the prenatal growth rates of 13 hominid species, including Homo sapiens. 
and this revealed that prenatal growth rates may have increased in the past 6 million years, which is after our ancestral lineage split from chimpanzees, and these growth rates became more similar to those of modern humans than other apes around 1 million years ago. So uh, this wasn't something I knew. Um, Human babies grow faster than other apes and hominids? Yeah, so human fetuses grow by around 11.6 grams per day on average, which is considerably faster than the growth rate of gorilla fetuses, um, which is a rate of 8.2 grams per day. It's fast, isn't it? 11 grams a day. Sounds like a lot, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and a cool part of all of this is that the increase in prenatal growth rates that occurred over the past six million years coincides with increases in pelvis and brain sizes in our ancestors. So this led the researchers I spoke to to suggest that the increase in prenatal growth rates might have been a key driver of the evolution of our species around 200 to 300,000 years ago. Wow, so why does, um, how do you link molar teeth to prenatal growth rate? Yeah, so the researchers aren't entirely clear why they're linked in this way, but they think some genes might regulate both how teeth grow and the overall growth rate of fetuses, making them correlated to each other. But they hope to investigate this further. As we've said, we're in the final preparation stage for New Scientist Live this weekend in London and online. And ahead of that, Rowan caught up with one of our star speakers, Nick Lane of University College London. Yeah, Nick's a professor of evolutionary biochemistry. Uh, He's the author of several award-winning books, and the most recent of which is Transformer, The Deep Chemistry of Life and Death. And as you say, he's appearing at New Scientist Live this weekend. And his work's really important because it's basically, it's really shown us a new way to investigate some of the deepest mysteries of biology. Nick, thanks for joining us. Now, something that's extraordinary about your work is that it seems to show how lots of the chemistry of life seems to arise spontaneously. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's amazing. And this is really what my last book is about, um, Mm. Transformer. I mean, I hesitate to say this. Technically, it's about the Krebs cycle. And I hesitate to say that because most people will back away. But it's actually, I I tried to find a a way of making the Krebs cycle sexy. Really, it's, it's about... What brings the planet to life and what brings our own lives to an end and, and what um, what even makes us conscious? What are, what are feelings in biochemical mm. terms? Unbelievably, the Krebs cycle touches on all of these aspects. And in the book, I, I, I try to explain it at the level of the chemistry itself in as friendly a way as I can. And that mm. means going to the level of the molecules themselves and trying to convey enough of what we know about these molecules to explain why this chemistry happens spontaneously and why it's favored. In terms of thermodynamics, this is what happens. We start with carbon dioxide and hydrogen and we get the core of biochemistry for free. Yeah. So that's the Krebs cycle, isn't it? Because, I mean, I have to admit, I was quite hazy on the importance of it before I read your book. So perhaps can you explain for people who are even more hazy than I was, what, you know, yes. why the Krebs, why it's so central to life? So for most people, if anyone can remember anything, it's usually that it's somehow linked to energy generation in cells. And that's what we're doing in right. our own mitochondria is we're effectively spinning this cycle of molecules that all look a bit similar to each other. They're all kind of carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. And effectively what we're doing is we're breaking them down and we're pulling out CO2. You know, we're, we're breathing that out. And we're pulling out hydrogen and we're effectively feeding the hydrogen to oxygen in respiration. So we're, we're basically, we're fueled by rocket fuel. 
And then we end up with a, a weird paradox, which is running in one direction in ancient bacteria, the Krebs cycle is converting gases into living things. And running in the other direction is generating all the energy that we need to live. And yet in our own cells, it's doing both at the same time. And you kind of think, mm. well, there's a tension here. Which direction does this thing want to go in? Does it want to make the building blocks of life or does it want to provide energy? And it's actually doing both. And instead of being a cycle going one way or the other way, it's in effect a roundabout that's trying to do more than one thing at once. And it turns out that in cancer, this is one of the main things that's going wrong. And it's this kind of balance between needing the building blocks to make new cells, to make new lipids for membranes and new DNA and new proteins that, that all cells need. And cancer cells are replicating all the time and, and using this cycle to, to promote their growth. And the need for, for, for energy, which is for cancer cells less than you'd think. So it's become, over the last decade or so, it's gone from being dry textbook biochemistry to being a potential answer to the origin of life and a potential explanation for what's going wrong with cancer and almost everything in between. So it's actually an amazingly <laughs> thrilling subject. Does thinking about life like this in terms of energy flow, does that help with the definition for it? Because that's been really tricky over the year you know there's loads of different definitions of life aren't there I, I know NASA struggle with mm. you know agreeing on one I mean can we define life um, no I don't think we can differently? Um, <laughs> personally I, I, I think it's the wrong thing to even try and do and you know you mentioned that NASA have this working definition and I'm not sure I can get it exactly right but it's something like a self-sustained system capable of undergoing evolution or something along those lines and, and I have a real problem with the word self-sustained because life isn't self-sustained. It's sustained by the environment. Uh, and of, of course, they know that. It's just where do you place an emphasis? And really, we are, we are completely dependent on, on the environment. And, and, and what it tends to forget, if you like, is this continuous chemical reaction that's going on in our own respiration. You, know, you put a plastic bag over your head and you'll be dead within, within minutes. But that's not just true for us. That's true for all bacteria as well. If you prevent this chemical reaction, which is, which is making them alive from continuing, then, then, then they're dead soon enough. And so the question of the origin of life really is, well, what is this chemical reaction and how do you have it in the absence of a, you know, a cardiovascular system or, or a respiratory apparatus in bacteria and so on? And so you need, you need environments that are in continuous flux, if you like, that are continuously far from equilibrium. And it's that which is, you know, a continuous supply of hydrogen gas, a continuous supply of CO2, a continuous structure which is forming spontaneously, which we again get in hydrothermal vents. And right. then this long continuum going from really simple prebiotic chemistry, converting hydrogen and CO2 into Krebs cycle intermediates at one end, to the other end where we have quite complex maybe protocells and, and a genetic code emerging in that environment. And then the beginnings of molecular machines like ribosomes, the protein building factors and so on. It's such a long continuum. And there isn't really one point across that continuum where you could agree that we'll draw a line and say, and now it's life. You know, this, this is just a continuum between non-living and living. And it's an arbitrary dividing line, and any definition of life is going to come up with some arbitrary dividing line in this continuum. Another thing that's really interesting, isn't it, is that, is that you know, when you learn about natural selection, one thing that's great about Darwin's sort of vision is mm -hmm. that you can understand how that would work on, on any planet where you have the right conditions. And this idea is similar if you've got the same sort of chemistry that you've just been describing, this, this flux then you, you might get the same sort of thing happening any, anywhere, right? 
Well, yes, I think so. I mean, it's a question which I find I find myself obsessing over over you know more than more than a decade now. Is is why is life the way it is? And you could imagine that it could be all kinds of different ways. And probably you know anyone's imagination is 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 tiny in comparison to what's possibly out there. But we're scientists; we need to try and think in a rational way about well, how do we break the problem down in, in, into bite-sized chunks that we can wrestle with a little bit. And so, you know, very familiar questions to people, why is life carbon-based? Well, one very good answer is that carbon is abundant. Um, it's one of the most abundant elements in the universe. And it's really good at the kind of chemistry it does. It's really good at making complex molecules as big as DNA or RNA or proteins and things. And other molecules like silicon, well, atoms like silicon or silicates and so on, they don't do that job nearly as well. So it, maybe it's possible to have life which is not carbon based but it's more likely that it's going to be carbon based just because it's you know it it is so much carbon out there and it's so good at what it does that i would yeah. guess that most of the time it would be carbon based especially if we're thinking about kind of a planet bootstrapping itself up from a, a non-living planet to a planet with life on it we may find plenty of silicon based life out there but it's you know it's robots it's um it's mm -hmm. ai of some sort but I, I think for life to start on a planet there's relatively limited options there. And then do we need water? To be honest, we don't really know. Um, but there's, again, water is abundant, is everywhere, is really good at what it does. And wet, rocky planets and moons will give rise to the kind of hydrothermal systems that I'm talking about, and, and effectively a reaction between hydrogen and CO2 to generate molecules like the Krebs cycle intermediates. This is chemistry. Again, mm. chemistry is conserved, to the best of our knowledge, right across the universe. So we would expect mm. to see similar chemistry. You could even argue, I mean, I, I, I'm reluctantly doing so, reluctantly because I really didn't believe this would be possible a few years ago, but our own research and, and patterns in the genetic code are beginning to suggest that even the code reflects deterministic chemistry to some extent. Wow. Um, in other words, if we were to find life on Mars and it had a similar code to the code that we find here, Five years ago, I would have said, ah, well, there was contamination for sure. Uh, yeah. If there was an independent origin of life on Mars, then then it would have a completely different code. Now I'm not so sure. The patterns in the code suggest there's a lot of deterministic chemistry going on. And so I wouldn't expect it to be exactly the same, but I would expect the differences to be smallish. How far does it go? It's a, it's a shocking kind of <laughs> question, but it, it does seem increasingly to me that, that life is is this way for, for reasons grounded in, in thermodynamics and chemistry. And that's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, Alexandra Thompson, Carissa Wong and Matt Sparks. And thanks to you for listening. We hope to see you at the show in London. Uh, that's October the 8th and 9th. Go to newscientist.com slash live for more information. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 